Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for giving us a listen today. We appreciate it. This is episode number 59 of The Next Track, and uh, we are releasing this episode just before the July 4th holiday in the U.S., big summer holiday here. And so we thought we'd look back at another summer, a very important summer culturally and musically, the summer of 1967, the so-called Summer of Love. Now, we're recording this episode right after the anniversary of a fairly important musical event. Fifty years ago this past weekend, something really important happened. And it was probably one of the seminal events in popular music. It was the Monterey Pop Festival. Largely considered to be the first major rock festival. It featured the American debuts of Jimi Hendrix and The Who, uh, Janis Joplin's performance with Big Brother and the Holding Company landed them a record deal with Columbia Records. Uh, we'll get into some of, of that stuff later, but here's what I find interesting, and without getting too existential. Remember that it was only four years ago that we were observing the release of Please Please Me. The release of the first Beatles album. Right. And while Please Please Me is not the most important record ever released, it's an important landmark. Now, that was in early 1963. A short four years later, we get to the Monterey Pop Festival, the Summer of Love, acid rock, psychedelia, country rock, blues rock, folk rock, all of these genres have blossomed in a mere four years. I mean, we've gone from I Want to Hold Your Hand to Jimi Hendrix setting his guitar on fire at Monterey Pop. And that's an incredible, that's an incredibly short incubation period. And it's an era that produced music that is still familiar today. It's true, because when we look at popular music or even rock music right now, it seems to have stagnated a lot since, frankly, since the 70s. Hip-hop came in in the late 70s and the early 1980s, but that's the only real change we have in popular music. Even if you look at the overproduced robotic pop music written by three Swedish guys that we have, it's not that different from the early days where you still had a bunch of brill-building songwriters writing songs that, you know, the popular singers were singing. It was just a different tone of music. One of the things that amuses me, and I've mentioned this in the past, is that today it's not unusual for many people to be familiar with music that was created 50 years ago. And we're going to be talking about some of it. But 50 years ago, it would have been very unusual to expect that kind of familiarity with the music 50 years previous to that. I mean, I don't think very many radio stations in 1967 were playing Golden Oldies written in 1917. <laughs> so anyway, back to 1967 and the Monterey Pop Festival and the Summer of Love. We found out doing research on this topic that the phrase Summer of Love was invented by the people in San Francisco at the time to refer to the huge migration, the hegira, of young people who had been urged to go to San Francisco. And to be sure to wear flowers in their hair. <laughs> well, you referenced the song, San Francisco, wear some flowers in your hair. Um, the Monterey Pop Festival was put on by John Phillips, Papa John, one of the members of the Mamas and the Papas, and Lou Adler, who was a promoter, entrepreneur. And the song, San Francisco, was written by John Phillips and given to his friend Scott McKenzie, not only to promote San Francisco as a hippie countercultural destination, but also very deliberately to promote the Monterey Pop Festival. And in case you didn't know, Monterey is uh, is just south of San Francisco. It's a it's on a it's on a peninsula. It's on the water. Uh, Cannery Row is there. Fisherman's Wharf. But producing a producing a pop hit to to induce people to come to your event is so anti hippie and pro corporate. It just strikes me as incredibly ironic. 
As you say, 67 is the beginning of acid rock. Technically, it's the coronation of acid rock because arguably it began a little bit earlier with the acid tests in San Francisco and the Grateful Dead back in 66. But 67 was this crystallization of so many things. It was the first big festival, the Monterey Pop Festival. But the Monterey Pop Festival was not the first big festival. A week earlier was the Fantasy Fair and Magic Mountain Music Festival. It was June 10 and 11. And this was in Marin County, California. And this is really the first multi-act outdoor rock festival, people outside on a stage with crowds in front of them. And you had bands like Canned Heat and Dionne Warwick. You had The Seeds, The Blue Magoos, Country Joe and the Fish, Captain Beefheart, The Birds with Hugh Masekela on trumpet, Tim Harden, The Grassroots, The Fifth Dimension, and Jefferson Airplane. Now, this is really quite a massive number of bands, but then don't forget you also had The Doors, who were playing Light My Fire, which had just charted around that time. So everyone was going to hear The Doors and all these other bands. And of course, this was a local festival. It didn't have national impact. These were all bands that were essentially California, San Francisco. But it did do a lot to create the idea of what a festival could be. I'll put a link to the Wikipedia page in the show notes. There's about 25, 30 bands played all together. There had been, of course, other music festivals. Monterey had hosted the Monterey Jazz Festival based on the Newport folk and Newport Jazz Festivals. And uh, I grew up in Rhode Island, not far from Newport. And Newport is the sort of place where uh, that's where you park your yacht for a week and, and, and enjoy some music at Fort Adams, where the festivals were held. I, I'm sure that the Monterey Festivals at the, uh, where was it held? At the Monterey Fairgrounds? Um uh, they had the same sort of clientele, and they had not done a pop festival or a rock festival uh, up until then. The Fantasy Fair and Magic Mountain Music Festival was held in a 4,000-seat amphitheater, but about 36,000 people attended. The Monterey Pop Festival, on the other hand, had a capacity of 7,000. Crowd estimates, according to Wikipedia, range from 25 to 90,000 people who congregated in and around the festival grounds. Apparently, 8,500 jammed into it for Saturday night's show. This isn't Woodstock by any means. This is a big show, but it isn't Woodstock. But let's look at the bands who were playing there. You mentioned a couple of them, but the Jefferson Airplane, the Who, the Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Burden and the Animals, Otis Redding, Ravi Shankar, the Mamas and the Papas, among others. I mean, this is a huge, huge get to have all those bands. Now, it was the, the Who's first was it their first major date? Yeah, they had played a couple of gigs in New York, but this was really the, the big debut. Yeah, two months early, they'd played in New York. Jefferson Airplane was already well-known. They had, they had two popular singles behind them, but still not a first album. The Grateful Dead did an extraordinary performance, and it wasn't. they hadn't released their first album by then, I don't think. Same with Hendrix. So a lot of these bands were in the air, perhaps played on the radio, but they weren't bands that necessarily, they, they were bands on the way up with a bullet. They weren't bands already at the top. Hendrix got noticed through his performance there, obviously setting his guitar on fire and, and things like that. Interestingly, the Beatles had been invited to play at Monterey, but they declined. And it was Paul McCartney who recommended, get Jimi Hendrix and The Who. They're really big in, in Britain right now. 
Uh, so that's how that happened. And when it came time to decide who was going to headline that evening, was it going to be The Who or Jimi Hendrix, they flipped a coin. Neither wanted to follow the other. It turns out that Hendrix had to follow The Who. And he knew he was in trouble because he knew their act. He knew that at the end of the show, Townsend and Moon would destroy their equipment. So he had to come up with something even more interesting than that. And it turns out he set fire to the guitar. And it was caught on film, which we haven't even talked about yet. Yes, let's get to the film. D.A. Pennebaker shot this film. It is the first rock concert film ever. And I, I think the film definitely contributed to the renown of the festival. The film came out a year later in 1968, by which time the Summer of Love and everything that had been around it was gone. And, and all the musicians who'd lived in San Francisco had moved out of the city by then. All the members of the Grateful Dead lived in Haight-Ashbury, and they'd all moved to Marin County after that. Well, once the Summer of Love was declared over, everybody left. San Francisco had absorbed about 100,000 young people coming to visit Haight-Ashbury that summer. It got so bad that the Chamber of Commerce had to create a thing called the Council of the Summer of Love in order to facilitate this inundation of people and in an attempt to maintain, you know, decent city services. So no one was more relieved than San Francisco when the Summer of Love was over. But you're right, everybody took off after that. And, and at the same time, you had guided bus tours with people coming to see hippies. I, I believe it was early in the summer that Time Magazine read an article on the Summer of Love. And, you know, San Franciscans being good at stirring up interest created these tours. And, and not long ago, I saw some documentary, maybe it was that Grateful Dead documentary, Long Strange Trip that's on Amazon. And there was a, a bit of footage of people in a bus as the bus driver was reading out, you know, here are the hippies on Hate ashbury and they wear flowers in their hairs. And it was all these squares in this bus looking out at these people like they were in a zoo. Well, from a squares point of view, you've got a bunch of kids running around and in Indian garb, they're wearing headbands and beads and, and, and leather, and they're living in communally, and the facilities don't allow them to bathe regularly. They can, hippies got a bad rap. So here's what prompted us to talk about 1967. It wasn't just the Monterey Pop Festival. It was the release of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And we thought we'd do a show talking about the album, but we realized we didn't have enough to say. <laughs> it's true. What were we going to say? There's been a re-release with a remix, and you can listen to it if you want. I'll take the mono version anytime. But when we look back at 1967, it was fascinating to see what happened in that year. You know, every once in a while, you get this year where a lot goes on. In my youth, it was 1977. An awful lot of things happened in New York. Everything from a heat wave to the blackout to the Yankees winning the World Series and, you know, great concerts and stuff. But you, you had things in, in culture that were going on at that time. But 1967 is a year which is just astounding. Did you realize that the first Super Bowl was in 1967 in January? I hadn't even I hadn't realized that. And I'm a football fan. And you are. That started off the year. So here's just an example of some of the important events that occurred in 1967. The Vietnam War was going strong, and in February there was a huge operation called Operation Junction City with 25,000 U.S. and South Vietnamese troops. April, General William Mest Moreland said that the enemy had gained support in the United States that gives him hope that he can win politically that which he cannot win militarily. And this is because people were starting to protest the war. Young people had gone off to Vietnam and come back and told their brothers and sisters what they'd seen, and they'd come back maimed if they'd come back at all. And there were a lot of protests going on. June the 1st, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band came out in the United States. 15 weeks at number one, two and a half million copies in the first three months. Astounding. The Six-Day War, Israel, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. The Biafran War in Nigeria. 
and the first human heart transplant in December by Dr. Christian Barnard in South Africa. You know, we found out a lot about these things, not firsthand and not from the newspaper, but from television. A lot of these uh, conflicts around the world were, were seen on television every night. So it was, it was quite dramatic. Well, again, back in January, the same day as the Super Bowl, you had the Rolling Stones on the Ed Sullivan Show. Yeah, they did uh, Let's Spend the Night Together, but Ed made them change the lyrics to Let's Spend Some Time Together. Yep. <laughs> the Beatles were on American Bandstand, a tape performance um, doing Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever. Those were the first two singles recorded during the Sgt. Pepper sessions. They released as singles. They don't appear on the album, but they were collected later on Magical Mystery Tour. And, you know, relatively speaking, the Beatles got a lot of TV time because not only did they do those tape performances, but they also participated in the uh, global worldwide satellite telecast called Our World. Uh, featured a lot of uh, different people from different parts of the world broadcast live. But that's the uh, that's the program where the Beatles did the live version of All You Need Is Love. Yeah, and this was full of well-known performers, Mick Jagger, Marion Faithful, Keith Richards, Keith Moon, Eric Clapton, Patty Harrison, Jane Asher, Graham Nash, Hunter Davies, and the Beatles. Yeah, they had a lot of segments from different parts of the world. It was just, you know, different things going on live from around the world. It sounds quaint now, but... Really, it was just you know the BBC showing off their uh, yeah the was, technology the satellite technology and all right that. you got to see things like the Tokyo subway and shepherds in Canada and wow so later in the year in the fall we've got the Doors on Ed Sullivan show doing Light My Fire and you know what well I know Morrison kept his pants on Sullivan wanted him to change that line girl we couldn't get much higher but Jim Morrison sang it the way it was written and the band got banned from the show dirty disgusting drug-addled hippies. Yep. And and the year ends with Magical Mystery Tour by the Beatles airing on BBC One on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas. Arguably, that's the beginnings of psychedelia in film. You know, it's taking the music to, you know, adding all these bright colors in, in the music on, on film, on TV. McCartney was really into the uh, London art scene, the film scene, and uh, he more or less took on uh, producing Magical Mystery Tour, more or less. He was kind of the impetus behind it. And uh, a lot of his artistic sensibilities entered into it. And that incorporated a lot of those psychedelic arts and stuff. Well, as long as we're talking about film, the other day we were looking at the list of highest grossing films in 1967. And it's really quite impressive that, that this was such a good year, rivaling maybe 1939 for all these quality movies. The Graduate, The Jungle Book, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Bonnie and Clyde, The Dirty Dozen, Valley of the Dolls, You Only Live Twice, To Sir With Love... Camelot, Casino Royale, I Am Curious Yellow, so here we're getting into the hippie stuff, Barefoot in the Park as well, In Cold Blood, In Like Flint. I mean, this was an extraordinary year for movies. Yeah, and like the music, um, we're still somewhat familiar with them, even though they were made 50 years ago. Well, since we're a music podcast, we really want to talk about the music because the number of foundational albums released in 1967 is really quite stunning. And, and Sgt. Pepper wasn't the Beatles' first album, but it was the one that put them on the map. More than just screaming teenage girls were interested in the Beatles by that point. So in January, The Doors' first album, The Doors, was released. And later that year, the, their second album, Strange Days, was released. Jefferson Airplane had two releases, Surrealistic Pillow and After Bathing at Baxter's. Pink Floyd's Piper at the Gates of Dawn, arguably not one of their best albums, but it really did set the stage for what... Pink Floyd would become, at least until Sid Barrett left the band and they slightly changed direction. Creamed Israeli Gears. I mean, Cream in 1967. How long did they last? 18 months? They couldn't have lasted too much longer than that. 
Yeah. I think they only put four albums out. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The Birds, Younger Than Yesterday. The Rolling Stones had two releases, Between the Buttons and their Satanic Majesty's Request. Now, that really marks a big difference in the Rolling Stones between those two albums. Look at the cover of the, the, of the Between the Buttons and, and the other one. Between the Buttons is a slightly blurry photo of the band, and then um, Satanic Majesty's Request has this almost Sgt. Pepper-like cover with them with these color clothes, and then there's these clouds framing the picture, and they look like they're in some kind of wonderland. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat disappointed by Satanic Majesties because, you know, the Rolling Stones are a blues band. They're, they're an R&B band, and here they are cashing in on the, on the psychedelic fad, and I've just never trusted that record. Yeah, and, you know, so, songs like She's a Rainbow, 2,000 Light Years from Home, these were all songs that were a big change. It, it's interesting also that a lot of these songs were longer than early Stone songs. You know, they were good at the three-minute song early on. She's a Rainbow's 435, 2,000 Light Years from Home, 445. Sing this all together, see what happens, 833. Okay, that was a bit of a one-off. This is just a whole strange period for the Rolling Stones. It's almost, it, this is the beginning of the tensions in the band with Brian Jones and... You know, you can tell by the music they were putting out. It wasn't until later that they, when they were playing with Jones anymore, they became a rock band. But this period is just, they, they just seem kind of foundering. So The Who released The Who Sell Out, which it was a good album in some ways. It has I Can See for Miles, but it really was a sort of in-between album, wasn't it? Well, it was a concept album. Um, it was a parody of, uh, of a radio station, a day during a radio station. They had fake commercials and fake jingles and things like that scattered throughout the album. I, I've never been a big fan of The Who. I, I know their hits, and this didn't do it for me. It really didn't. Well, I think, you know, I say it as a concept album, but I think it really was just an excuse to string a bunch of singles together. A lot of these bands were singles bands, not necessarily album bands. And the idea of doing a consistent album was still somewhat unusual. So the sell, uh, the Who sellout is is sort of just an excuse to, to get all these unrelated singles and put them together. And why not parody a radio station? So that's kind of how that worked out. So here's one, uh, as I said earlier, some of these are foundational albums, and this one clearly is The Velvet Underground and Nico. Now, I think of that album as a more modern record. That was 67, yeah. yeah. Now, frankly, that's not a singles album at all. That is an album album. Who was it that said 10,000 people bought this album and they all went on to form bands or something? It was one of these things that was relatively ignored for a while. But then, you know, it has this long-term influence. If you don't know this album, this is the absolute, the essential Velvet Underground album. I'm Waiting for the Man, Femme Fatale, Venus and Furs, All Tomorrow's Parties, Heroin, I'll Be Your Mirror. I mean, it's just, an, it's extraordinary. It really is. I looked up that quote. It was Brian Eno who said, I think everyone who bought one of those 30,000 copies started a band. So Progal Harum's first album came out in 67 as well. And that's this isn't a great album, but it does have Conquistador. And that's really, that, that was presumably their biggest single. I remember owning this album back in the day, back in the 70s. And it kind of sets a tone. Now, what's interesting is that the US version of the album also had a wider shade of pale, which had been released as a single in the UK, presumably after the album was released. And so they were able to fit it on the US album because it was maybe a little bit later. Procol Harum would go on to become one of the more influential band, rock bands, pop bands. In last week's episode, we talked about progressive rock with Dave Weigel, and he kind of brushes aside Procol Harum as being a progressive rock band. And it's true, I really wouldn't call them that because 
they didn't have that same sort of vision that the progressive rock bands did. Yeah, they had uh, some progressive rock elements, like longer song times and a prominent church-like organ and mysterioso lyrics. Um, but it, like Dave said, a, a lot of these bands were marketed as prog rock because it was a good marketing handle. So then we get to Jimi Hendrix. Are You Experienced comes out early in the year and then Axis Bold as Love later in the year. I just, I've never bought into the whole Jimi Hendrix thing. I don't know why. He, he was an extraordinary guitarist, but for me, there's a lot more technique than songwriting in his music. Well, imagine this. You've got a crowd that's probably very familiar with Bob Dylan. And here's this wigged out guitar player doing an interpretation of Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. It must have been flabbergasting um, and amazing at the same time. And, and then he goes and also does a version of the Trog's Wild Thing, which... You know, originally was this garage band frat rock song, but he turns it into something, you know, a little more dangerous. Yeah, and obviously the Monterey Pop film served to make him into an icon with him trashing his guitar and burning it and playing with his teeth and all that. Now, Bob Dylan didn't have any albums in 67. He had this famous motorcycle crash that may or may not have happened in 66, and he didn't come back until January 68, where he performed at a Woody Guthrie Memorial Concert in Carnegie Hall. The next album of his was Nashville Skyline in 1969. Now, given Dylan's popularity, it's not surprising that Columbia released Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits. Now, when you think about it, the guy had only been recording for five years, from 62 to 66, four or five years, yet there was already enough for a Greatest Hits album. Well, I'll tell you, um, a lot of people who didn't want to buy Bob Dylan albums but wanted to be hip to Bob Dylan bought that record. I used to see that record everywhere. It was very popular among non-folk fans. And frankly, there were Greatest Hits. There were Rainy yeah. Day Woman 12 and 35, Blowing in the Wind, The Times They Are Changing, Like a Rolling Stone, Mr. Tambourine Man, Subterranean Homesick Blues, Just Like a Woman. He had enough to make a Greatest Hits album after just, you know, a few records. That's, when you think about it, that's quite impressive. I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if the Greatest Hits album was like in the top 20 as Monterey pop was going on. So Donovan came out with his album Mellow Yellow. That's a total Summer of Love album, isn't it? That that's got the the sound. You, you you hear that song. It's like the soundtrack to people in tie dye shirts. I never really liked that stuff. Donovan was friendly with Dylan, so there was a little bit of cross pollination. But I just thought it was pop. Yeah, he cornered the market on. I don't know what would you call it, psychedelic folk or something. I heard an interview with him sometime with probably within the past five years, and he's still far out. He's still he's still a hippie. So here's some more pre-Summer of Love albums that, have, that were released. Happy Together by the Turtles. Can't you just hear that song? Is that not going to be your earworm of the day? I won't try to sing it because we'd be in copyright violation. And they are litigious. Uh, two things. Howard Kalin and Mark Volman, uh, when the Turtles broke up in 1970, joined Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. And also recently, I think it was last winter, um, Sirius XM was forced to pay up $99 million in a class action lawsuit filed by the Turtles uh, for, well, the 1972 copyright law was a bit vague on how to handle uh, royalty payments before 1972, and, uh, well, this fixed that. So don't sing their song. And then you get the, what would you call it, the psychedelic hippie titles. Electric Comic Book by the Blues Magoos and the Electric Prunes had their first album. Another band that was quite popular at that time was the Monkees. Now, were the Monkees not cool? Well, they were big. Uh, they had Their first album was number one for a couple of weeks earlier in the year. 
Yeah, and so their second album came out in 1967 called More of the Monkeys, a, a, a rocking 28 minutes, 41 seconds, <laughs> with 12 songs. I mean, here are songs that are less than two minutes even. I'm a Believer closes out the album. The Monkeys were certifiable celebrities. In fact, even in the film Monterey Pop, there's a couple of shots of Mickey Dolan's in the audience, all decked out in his, in his uh, leather gear. And Peter Tork, although I don't know if he's in the film, he introduced the Buffalo Springfield because of his, uh, he had a friendship with Stephen Stills. So, you know, they were legitimate celebrities. They had a TV show. So another foundational album that you probably wouldn't think of from 1967, David Bowie's first album. No, really? Yeah. The one that was just entitled David Bowie. There's not a song on here that I recognize. It didn't get very good reviews. It only reached 125 in the UK album charts, which I guess isn't bad. But it was, you know, early Bowie that wasn't Bowie. He hadn't yet figured out what he was doing. His time would surely come. So 67 was a very good year. And there's an awful lot of music to check out. And there's an awful lot of cultural events to check out. This is the kind of year uh, I know a number of authors have made books about specific years. I, I, I've seen 68 and 71. I don't know if anyone's done a 1967 yet, as far as music and popular culture are concerned. And this would be a good year to approach like that. So go to your favorite streaming service and start looking up some of these 1967 albums and make sure you put flowers in your hair before you do it. Peace, cool, far out, psychedelic, tie-dye, groovy. Ba-doom, boom. Well, for our next tracks, I think it would be silly not to pick uh, stuff from 1967. And I'm going to pick the Jefferson Airplane album, Surrealistic Pillow. It's the first of two albums that they released in 1967. And it's got some of their hits like Somebody to Love and White Rabbit. But it's also got Yorma Kalkinen's Embryonic Journey. Now, well, I've talked about Hot Tuna a number of times. Hot Tuna sort of split off from Jefferson Airplane. And they would play some of their blues songs in the concerts, in between the more poppy Jefferson Airplane songs. And they, some of them are on Jefferson Airplane albums. And eventually they would actually open for the Jefferson Airplane. They would, the two of them would do an opening set. And, and it was kind of interesting that Jorma Kalkinen was a good enough guitarist and important enough to the band to be able to impose that on the band. But at the same time, it was interesting that the band's fans were willing to accept this that the psychedelic pop music with, you know, arguably quite attractive lead singer, Grace Slick, and then this long-haired, you know, skinny guy playing this extraordinary blues guitar. So there's only the one real Yorma Kalkinen song. There's another one, She Has Funny Cars, that Yorma wrote with Marty Bowen on this album. But I think this album is a good example of what early Jefferson Airplane was. They didn't last long. They had a couple of albums that were good, three or four albums, and then things started going sideways, and Yorma and Jack left, and then they became Jefferson Starship, which is one of the worst conversions in the history of rock and roll, I think. Anyway, so Surrealistic Pillow by Jefferson Airplane, that's what I'm going to be spinning next. What about you, Doug? You know, it is interesting how many important debut albums were released in 1967, and as I said earlier, so much of it you still hear, like Hendrix and The Doors and Janis Joplin, and Traffic released their debut album, Mr. Fantasy, in 1967. Actually, I'm kind of squeezing it in under the wire since the U.S. release wasn't out until early 1968. Not to sound facetious, but this is an old rock record that I can still tolerate. And I know I've mentioned that because I played a lot of this music for so many years on the radio, I'm just 
totally burnt out on it. But I'm not burned out on Traffic or this album. This has got Dear Mr. Fantasy on it, Heaven is in Your Mind, Paper Sun, Smiling Phases. This is the only album that Dave Mason was on for Traffic, uh, and he left the band after this album was released, but he did some great guitar work on it. And, of course, Steve Winwood is awesome, as always. The album was produced by Jimmy Miller, so that helps, too. The tracks for Mr. Fantasy were some of the things I remember hearing uh, very early on college FM stations. And for a progressive sort of album with improvisation and longer songs and unusual instrumentation, it was very popular and very well received by critics, too. It holds up pretty well, and I think most Traffic albums do. Traffic, Mr. Fantasy, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>